Good morning. While you're, yeah, I know y'all are like, oh no, I know, settle in, settle in. Just as a word to the wise so that you're not as stupid as I am when you're 48 years old, when you're returning from another continent on a Saturday, do not agree to speak on a Sunday, because <laughs> when Chase Bauer started his first prayer at the beginning of the sermon, I'm not kidding you, like I could feel that pull, you know, like you're going to drift right off, like, so if you do that. I absolutely understand, especially those of you who came from the Temple Prom, which, sorry, it was boring. It's usually not. (laughs) It's usually exactly the opposite. But anyway, so I went down to see our friends, the Hensons. They are serving as ophthalmologists in Cusco, Peru, which is gloriously beautiful. It's also, though, at 11,000 feet, so you feel like you can't breathe ever (laughs) the whole time you're there. But she has three small kids, and her youngest has actually been really, really sick. Her youngest is actually the same age as our Camilla, seven months. But he has had seizures, and um, her husband was going to be coming to Temple to speak at the medical school here. And then the only pediatrician in town was back here in the States. So she was literally going to be all alone there. And if something happened to him, he started seizing again. There would be nobody to stay with the little boys and the other two little boys while she tried to get him to the hospital and things like that. Praise God, nothing happened. We had a really great time. We'd, they have a Chili's there, so in Froyo, like, it's not, like, this was not a tough mission trip, right? But it was a free mission trip, and I'll go anywhere somebody pays me to go, so it was a lot of fun. But being with those kids did remind me of what it was like to be with three kids, like four and under, with one who talks constantly the other one like just wants to have his eyes on a screen so he's a lot like y'all so he's like totally in his own but he's very very chill and then there's the youngest who's just now learning how to kill himself which reminded me actually of Cassie when our daughter Cassie was four days old we left the hospital in San Angelo Texas drove 200 miles from the hospital to our new home in Colleen Texas where Wayne had just started his first coaching job, and it was the beginning of football season, which means I was alone in Colleen, Texas, with a four-day-old baby in a town where I knew no one. Now, hear this. You couldn't call long distance without it costing you a lot of money. There was no such thing as a cell phone or the Internet. So I had me, Cassie, a couch, and a book, (laughs) and that book was called What to Expect the First Year. I read it more than I ever did the Bible, like, in those first years, like, I devoured it, I was an unbeliever then, like, we we weren't looking to Jesus for anything back then, so here's the, here's the deal, to me, I was Cassie's only hope of life and death, right, which was terrifying, because about two years earlier, God had started to wake me up to what a screw-up I was, so I was terrified to raise this baby, I was terrified when I found out I was pregnant, I just knew I would ruin her, and, (laughs) But she was cute, and we started doing some fun things, which is just what their seven-month-old is doing. He's starting to crawl, kind of roll over, play with toys, scooch over to some things. Well, Cassie one day, like, stood up on my hands, and I was like, well, that's cute. She's seven months old, so I, like, propped her against the couch, and she would, like, lean back and then lean forward and stand there, seven months old, and then lean back on the couch and lean forward and stand up, and I, she would grin so big, and I thought this was the funniest thing ever, so I did it over and over. To my dismay... One week later, she took her first steps. Three days after she took her first steps, she was walking to me. You know, you're like, come on, come on. And she veered around me and headed into the other room. No joke. She was seven and a half months old 
And she is walking around the house. There were no cabinet locks. There were no outlets. There were no cushions on any corner, which meant this. I could used to, like two weeks before, I could put her in a spot and she'd be safe. Does that make sense to y'all? Like I could actually like go chop something or go get a Coke out of the fridge and she would stay where I put her. But now this little apartment, which seemed so great, was filled with danger. There was no place I turned where she wasn't trying to kill herself. Infants are suicidal. It's just that they don't know it, right? Yeah, so that was Cassie. Well, here's the deal. What that book did not warn me about was for every time we would clap for some new little skill, we also learned to cringe about what it was going to mean for my life and for her life. And things haven't changed. As she's grown, every time I taught her to speak, then she could talk back to me, start yelling no at me. I teach her how to use scissors, so now she's cutting her hair, and now she's cutting her sisters. Like every time we taught her a new skill, something bad happened from it. So why do you think we kept going? Why is it that you can all use a, a pencil and scissors? Because it's right, isn't it? It's right that as you grow and develop and learn new skills, but every time we do that, there is danger that comes along with it. We are taking a risk as parents. Every single time we passed on to you a new skill. Everywhere you turn, there's a new danger. So we taught you to cut with scissors so you could work on that little craft, which is fine. Except she really could cut her sisters. And then she grew up some. And we taught her, you can go down the street by yourself. This is how you do it. But I had to warn her, there are inattentive drivers. And unfortunately, I kept using words like inattentive, which is probably why she didn't understand anything I said. But there were drivers who weren't paying attention. You had to watch or you would die. And then she grew up more and we gave her a cell phone, which is great because now I didn't have to wonder about when the bus is coming back in. She could tell me when the game was over. But it also opened up to her a world of pornography, doesn't it? And she had no idea that just a few little looks at pictures or a few little readings could get you completely addicted. And then she grew up more, and she got her driver's license, which is great, except now she can kill people, literally kill people. And she can kill herself. She was not very far along into that little driver's license when she got into a minor accident. Aisley did the same. Every time we teach y'all a new skill, it comes with danger on the other side. We are taking a risk every single time. And now here's the thing. Here you are, sitting here. And honestly, when you look at all of the little kids behind you, especially if you're an impact and you go into clubs and you start to realize how really stupid and dumb and little y'all were in junior high. Have you woken up to that yet? Like, remember how grown you thought you were in junior high? And then you like get to be like a sophomore, junior in high school. And you're like, I was so such a baby. Like I was so not grown. But here's the thing. I want you to understand. We do start to see you at this age as growing up, as grown Some of you are 18 years old. You're legally an adult, except that I am. If you're 18, I am 30 years older than you. So you can understand why you look a little young to me. So how do I help you to navigate? How do I help my daughters navigate the world they're about to enter? Y'all, where you are, how do we as leaders help you to navigate all of the decisions that are coming your way? Everything you're about to face. If you're a college, if you're a high school senior, You're about to leave your home, probably. And this next part may cause you to, like, be overwhelmed and want to go take a nap for eight hours. But hold on with me. You've got to figure out 
what college you're going to, how you're going to get there, what you've got to take with you, what classes you're going to take, what major you're going to declare. You've also got to figure out how are you going to pay for this thing? Your parents are going to give you some, but they're probably not going to be able to pay for all of it. And you've got to get a job. And you've got to fit your schedule, though, as well. And it's also got to be able to give you enough time to be able to study. And when are you going to study for that test? Nobody's going to tell you anymore. And how are you going to get those grades? And if you don't get the grades, you don't get to stay in college. You're going to have to come home and live with your mommy and daddy for a long time. And nobody really wants that, right? Then that doesn't even include your social life. That doesn't include who you're going to date and who you're going to marry and what your life is going to look like. It's a little overwhelming to be a high school senior and to face these things coming into your life. They are big decisions and they are important decisions. But I want you to understand this. All of those big decisions are very much helped by one decision that you can make that will guide everything else that's coming. If you make this one decision, it narrows the field and limits all the other decisions that you're going to be made, you will know, and it doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean that Kevin's decision is going to be the same as Blair's, but with, for each of them, it can be narrowed down if they will make one decision. And you're probably sitting there thinking, yeah, 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 the decision to, you know, accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now, here's the thing. For most of you, and I am assuming this, for most of you, you've made that decision. For most of you, you're looking at life and you're believing Jesus Christ is my Savior. There is a series of decisions that have to be made through your life regards to Christ. And, but the biggest one that you're going to make is this. So many of us think that by making Jesus our Savior, we're sort of done. But that's not it. He will not be your Savior if you will not make Him Lord. He will not be your Savior if you will not make Him Lord. And what that means is you're going to turn your entire life over to Jesus Christ to follow Him no matter where he takes you and no matter the cost it's a decision that means that seems simple enough because here you are right you're sitting in church many of you have sacrificed some things for him some of you are in impact which means you're sacrificing time energy today to keep going I'm sacrificing this afternoon not taking like the 12-hour nap I would really like and we're going to be here at impact together and that cost us some some of you, I happen to know that you are fighting against sin that the world would tell you is stupid. Like, why are you fighting that? What's wrong with it? In fact, you can celebrate it if you're of the world. But you're actively trying to put that sin to death in you. And for others of you, you've actually sacrificed more. There's some of you that I know personally have lost relationships, have said no to relationships. You've said no because of your commitment to Jesus Christ. Maybe at times you were tempted one way or another, but you understand now that to follow him means not to be with that person. And it doesn't have to be a boyfriend-girlfriend situation. Sometimes it's friends that you can no longer follow after because you're making a commitment to follow Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's cost you some. What I want you to know, though, is that the stakes only get higher from here. And for the rest of you, for most of you, in just a few short months, you're going to be on your own making those decisions. For the rest of you, it's only one year, two years, possibly three years before you're making those same decisions on your own. So how do you do it? How do you make these decisions? What I want to try and show you are two things that are going to be up on the slide. Risk is right as long as the risk is worth the reward. And great risk for Jesus Christ is worth it because Jesus Christ gives us the greatest reward the, the world has ever known. Risk is right for Jesus Christ. It is worth it to risk 
everything for him because what you get from him is equal to the risk. But the second thing you need to understand is the world's not going to like this. It will mock you. It will make fun of you. It'll put you down. It'll actually try and tempt you and lure you. But that's not where the biggest trouble comes. You know to say no to the world. You also need to understand that you'll become against by Christian friends, by your family, and some of you even by your parents. So how will you know what's right? How do you know if the whole world is against you, if your friends think you're stupid, if your parents don't want you to be a part of something? How do you know whether or not this is the right thing to do? Is it worth the risk? I'd like to teach you that it's the same risk-reward grid that you've always used. Jesus knew more than anyone what the costs were going to be to his followers to follow after him. He was the one who was told his disciples over and over, this will cost you everything. You must be ready to give up nation, home, lives, family, kids. Everything will be on the line if you follow after me. He did not make it easy for people. They were going to risk their reputations. They were going to be misunderstood. They were going to be persecuted. They were going to be mocked. They were going to be scorned. You know why? Because this is exactly what happened to him. And he said, no one is greater than their master. If they do this to me, they'll do this to you. But what they didn't expect and what was always so sad when you read the Gospels, you expect that from the world. What you don't expect it to come is from inside the camp. Does that make sense to you all? It's easy to expect opposition from the world, but Jesus taught us by his own life. Some of that opposition is going to come from right next to you. Matthew carefully tells us about one of these scenes in Matthew 26. If you have a Bible, open up there, Matthew 26. If not, it'll be up here on the screen, starting in verse 6. It's almost the last chapter of Matthew. It goes to 28, so two chapters before the end. Matthew 26, starting in verse 6. I want to kind of set the scene for where this is for you. At the beginning of Matthew 26, it tells us that the, that the elders and the chief priests were plotting against Jesus. And then comes this dinner scene. Right after this scene, Judas gets up, goes out to those chief priests and elders, and betrays Jesus. So the question is, what made him so upset in these, in these verses we're going to read that would cause Judas to leave here because of what happens here to go betray Jesus. Well, this is what it says. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask filled with expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with me, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has anointed, for, she has prepared me for my burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. What made Judas betray Christ just now? The very next verse, if you're reading in your Bible, it won't be on the screen, but the very next verse says, and then Judas left. So this happens, Jesus says this, and then Judas went to the chief priests. What set Judas off? Well, apparently it was watching a woman count her cost 
and consider her reward in pouring out her life, her treasure to Jesus Christ. As they sat at Simon the leper's table in Bethany, this woman came up with a costly treasure, but she also came up with a heart filled with conviction. She believed something that the disciples didn't even believe. She had had her eyes open to something about Jesus Christ that even the, those closest to him, those who walked everywhere with him for three years, had no understanding of. She knew that the time had come for Jesus to die. But the question is, how did she know? Well, Bethany is only six miles from Jerusalem where he was about to be betrayed and crucified. So maybe she had been in Jerusalem, gone to a market, heard the rumblings from the temple about how much they hated Jesus. Maybe a traveler had passed through. Maybe somebody who knew Jesus, who loved him, stopped by the house and said, you need to know this is what's happening. Or she could have just listened to Jesus. If you have your Bibles, glance back up at verse 2. This should be on the screen as well. Jesus says, before this scene, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming. And then the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Jesus was going to die in two days. He told them that. This, then, is the last time this woman could serve him. She knew he was about to leave, and she knew that she might not see him ever again. She might not see him in Jerusalem. She might not see what happens to him. This was the last time she could minister to Jesus. He was about to give all he could for her. So she wanted to do all she could for him. He was about to be tortured, mocked, scorned, beaten, whipped, crown of thorns on his head, taken away, whipped again, carrying a cross, nailed there, die. And for Jesus... She just wanted to pour out what she had. Jesus called this a beautiful thing. But notice what his disciples said about this act of service. Notice how his own disciples felt about this. You saw it here. They called it a waste. They were indignant, angry with her. Why this waste? Mark 4, 14 tells the same story. And it says there, they scolded her in front of Jesus. They start griping at her. Start getting on to her. You've had this happen where you're doing what feels like to you a good thing. And somebody comes up behind you, sometimes a mom, asking you, what do you think you're doing? You don't do it like that. Don't do this. It's not worth it. You have no idea what you're doing with that. That's what they were doing to her. Why? Because it was too costly. The sacrifice was too costly. I'm sure they had in their minds an amount of that ointment that could be poured out that would be, you know, right. It would be fitting to the situation. What she poured out, we know, was worth 300 days wages. If you did the math with like take an average minimum wage, if you could work as a day laborer from sunup to sundown, multiply that by 300 days, what she poured out on Jesus was worth $26,000. That's a lot of money. But that's what Jesus was worth to her, which makes me wonder. I wonder what amount the disciples would have been happy with. What about three months' worth? Do you think they would have been okay with that? Or maybe if, maybe if she had done just a week's worth, maybe that would have satisfied them. Well, we happen to know what it was worth to one of them because when Judas goes to betray Jesus, he was paid the sum of $1,000. Judas thought Jesus was worth one. 
$5,000. And given the disciples' reactions, frankly, I could wonder if maybe they would think that amount was still too much to pour out on him. But to Jesus, this woman got it right. This woman did a beautiful thing because she understood who he was, she understood the time it was, and she understood what he was worth in it all. Why was that? Here's the question I want you to understand. Why did she get it and the rest of the disciples didn't? What had happened in her life that would change everything and cause her to take what could have, it could have fed her family for a year and she wastes it, as the disciples say on Jesus. Well, the good news for us is we know one of the great things about reading the Gospels is that so many of the stories are covered, not just in one, but in two or three. It's like, it's like if I ask somebody about the temple prom and the Carson tells me one thing about it and then I call one of our guys and ask Aaron, How, what did you think about it? He might have two very different perspectives on the same event. That makes sense to y'all, depending on who they're hanging around. The disciples who wrote these Gospels for us did the same thing. And this same story is in John Chapter 12, if you have your Bible, if you want to flip over, it'll also be on the screen. You can just stay in Matthew. But six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was. You remember Lazarus? They, John points him out to you again. You remember, it's the one that Jesus raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for Jesus there. And Martha served. And Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with Jesus. And Mary... Mary took a pound of ointment, expensive one, pure nard, and anointed not just his hair now we know, but the feet of Jesus as well, and wiped it, wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, was who was he was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was in there. So Jesus said, leave her alone so that you, she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but you do not always have me. This wasn't just some woman passing by the house who saw Jesus and happened to be carrying around a flask of expensive perfume. This was Mary. This was the brother of, this is the sister of Lazarus. Her brother was just in a tomb for four days. And she wept because Jesus wasn't there. We know what was foremost in Mary's mind as she entered this place to serve Jesus and to pour it out upon him. She knew who Jesus was. Jesus was to her the resurrection and the life. He told everyone that, but then he proved it to Mary and to Martha so clearly because there, sitting with Jesus, is Lazarus, her brother, received back, resurrected from the dead, given new life in Christ. This wasn't just a normal dinner, guys. This was a celebration of who Jesus was of what he was about, of what he could do. It was a celebration of Lazarus's life, of receiving back their dead. They had received the first fruits of what the Messiah had always been promised to do. Mary's sister Martha was at the tomb when Jesus returned. Lazarus is dead. He's been there four days. And he says to Mary, who am I? 
And Mary's the only woman who gets the opportunity to say this in the Gospels. You are the Christ. You're the Son of God who is coming into the world. She proclaimed the Christ. To her, we say Jesus Christ like it's his last name. That's not what it meant. To her, the word Christ meant that everything that the prophets, everything that the law pointed to was fulfilled in this one man. To her, when she's looking at Jesus, when Mary's looking at Jesus, they don't see him like the disciples see him. To them, they are looking at the one foretold. This is the shepherd unlike any shepherd. This is the ruler of all nations. This is the healer of nations. This is the king of kings. This is the Lord of lords. This God-man was the everlasting eternal king whose value could never be measured. If you put all of the universe together, there is no treasure that could match his worth. Mary showed his understanding not only of who he was, but the time it was. Jesus tells us that he she brought her gift to him to anoint him for burial. And you, can you just feel the tension she must have felt as she was understanding what was laying before her? She was, she was wrapping her arm around her brother who'd been brought back to life, now understanding that if Jesus' words are true, then the one who is life was about to submit to death. The one who could grant life was about to have it taken away. The one who rules over all was about to submit himself to men to die. The one who came down from heaven, guys, he was about to enter the earth. The God-man was about to die for her. Though it must have confused her, she got it. Because he had also told her that the way you save your life was to lose it. If you want to get everything, you have to give everything away. Every seed must die, he told them. But when it dies in the hands of the Lord of the harvest, you can expect to return 30, 60, 100 fold. That which dies will not stay dead. That which you give will never, will never just go away into waste. It will be returned to you as a seed returns produce to us. Mary wasn't losing anything by pouring out 300 days wages. To her... She realized there's no price that we can pay to have what we have in Jesus Christ. Mary went through the filter we all use. Is the cost of what we're about to do worth the reward that comes after? The problem is, is that we're too much like the disciples. We kind of evaluate how much is, how much is all this worth to us. I mean, we'll sacrifice this, but probably not that. I mean, I'm willing to go there, but you're not asking me to go to that place, right? I mean, I'll go to Cusco. Chili's and Froyo, that sounds like fun. But there are other places where they behead you for, for calling on the name of Jesus Christ. You're, you're not talking about those places, are you? I can sacrifice a week, but you're not calling me to sacrifice my life, are you? And guys, that's it. When Jesus said to them, the poor you will have with you always, he's not denigrating the poor. Like, I don't care about those people. What he's saying is, if I can get one of you to go where it's hard, I'm leaving all of the rest of you to take care of the poor. But don't gripe about those who make the bigger sacrifice. There will be plenty to go around. The same is true for us. So I'll just, I'll just kind of show all my cards here. I want you to go to the hard places. I want you to go to the hard places in your home. 
And I know there are hard places in your home. I know there are broken relationships in your home. And I want you to go back there over and over and over, even though it doesn't look like it's ever going to bear fruit. I want you to go to the hard places in your school. I know where it's easy for you to be, where it's easy for you to sit, where it's easy, who it's easy for you to talk to. I want you to go to the hard places because I want you to take the risk that he's worth it. And then I'd like for you to leave there and go across town. And then I'd like for you to leave here and go across the country. And I'd like for you to leave here and go across the world proclaiming that I will risk everything for him because the reward I have in him was won for me by Jesus Christ. No one can take it away. No one can snatch it out of his hand. I want you to be willing to risk your home and your family and your reputation. I want you to risk your talents and your gifts and even your very lives for Jesus Christ. I want you to be willing to go wherever he calls you. But listen, it doesn't mean he's going to call you to go, see, go tell ISIS tomorrow. It might, but it doesn't mean that. Here's why I'm telling y'all this. Because if y'all go, it does not mean that the rest of Temple and Belton and Academy and Rogers will not hear about Jesus Christ. There are Christians here. So if no one in our area hears about Jesus Christ, guess what? It's not because there are no Christians near them. It's because there's no obedient Christians near them. God has placed Christians in this area which means they can hear about Jesus Christ, but there are other places where that is not possible. There are actually homes here in Temple where they do not know. I have a host home coming up. I'm so excited about this one. This family just moved to a new area, and some boys in the neighborhood have started just coming around to their house. So she called. She was like, I'm going to sign up to be a host home. I said, I think that's great. She was like, okay, these are kind of some rough kids. Will your kids be ready? I was like, my kids will, like, fight me for your house. They're going to be so excited about this. And she was like, really? And I was like, oh, yeah. We have some kids who get it. We've got some teens who are ready for this. They like the hard places. They like hearing, saying, like, do you know about Jesus? And people go, mm-mm. And she said, well, that's my house. Like, I asked them, like, have you ever been to church? Do you know about Jesus? And they said, I think I've heard his name somewhere. So there are places right here where you have whole homes where kids are growing up with no understanding of who the name Jesus is. But next door to them is a family who does. So though you can go there and be sweet if you did, maybe even for a week, when you leave, there's still going to be somebody to take care of that family. Does that make sense to you? But there are other places where that's not true. But unfortunately, too many of us are miserly about what we're willing to offer for him. So there's no reason for us to say with Isaiah, here I am, send me. And guess what? Guess which group it's harder for? Me. It's one thing for me to say to Jesus, here I am, send me. It's another for thee to say, here they are, send them. Look at my girls and say, here they are, send them. We're parents. Have y'all noticed we've worked really hard to keep you safe? We have stopped you from biting that electrical cord, from sticking metal into the outlets. We have stopped your head from being burst open, from falling into the fireplace. We have waited in carpool lines for hours for you people, wasting our lives in carpool lines to, for you. We have stayed awake at night while you're throwing up all over us. We have paid big bucks for you. We have paid orthodontist bills and hospital bills. And now we're about to pay for university for you. 
We care about you. We have tried to display with our entire lives that you are valuable to us. And guys, it's not just true for my own kids. When I look out at y'all, the more time I spend with you, the more valuable you are to me. And you keep leaving me, right? (laughs) And I still have such affection and such love for you as you go. But it is wrong when you look back at us as parents and you realize we have such a hard grip on you that we want to tell you there are places you can go that will cost too much. There are places, things you can do for Jesus Christ that are just too costly. We just, let's just not go there. Let's, let's just keep a little closer, a little safer. Let's not give so much, not so much time, not so much of yourself, not so much energy. You're exhausted. You should probably pull back some. It's so easy for us to want to keep you happy and healthy and sane. It's so easy for me as a mom, I'll just warn you, to want your best life to be right here and right now. Even if I don't want that for myself, even if I'm willing to sacrifice for me, it's still so hard for me to give y'all over to following Christ wherever he calls you to whatever he does. You need to know it's not just hard for me, but it's hard for the rest of the church as well. Notice who got on to Mary. It wasn't the Pharisees on the outside looking in. It's not the chief priests and the elders who were bent out of shape. It's Peter. It's John. It's Matthew. It's these guys who are writing these books. They're bent out of shape at the cost for Jesus. Expect that to be true for you as well. Christian family and Christian friends who just don't get the value system you're using. They think he's worth something, but not everything. You'll hear things like, what do you mean you're not going to be home for Christmas? You know, you just spend all your time with those people. It's like we never see you anymore. You'll also hear things like, every time I'm around you, all I ever hear about is the homeless or racial reconciliation or orphans or foster kids. All I ever hear about is this thing you've got going on. Like, I just want to know about you. You're like, "That's, that's me. They won't get it. So you'll feel a lot more isolated than you've ever felt in a group of Christian friends. You'll feel yourself pulling away. Careful, though, that you'll also start to feel yourself more prideful, as if you've achieved some higher knowledge, some special thing, instead of feeling more and more like the servant of all. You'll know you're getting it if you see your sins more than theirs. If the people you're ministering to are not your little pet project, but people who look just like you, but for the grace of God. As you grow to serve, you also ought to be growing as a servant. Does that make sense to y'all? The more you grow in him, you ought to look more like him, and you'll know you're getting it. But I do want you to understand this, so let me say it again. Great risk for Christ is worth whatever it's going to cost you, wherever you may go, whatever he calls you to, because the reward you have in Jesus Christ is worth more than anything you could ever give. I need you to hear me. If the resurrection is not true, then you ought to just eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you die. Paul actually said it. Change the slide. In 1 Corinthians 15, he put it like this. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we above all people are to be most pitied. In other words, don't risk anything. Take life as you want it. Spend it on whatever you want. Because if Jesus Christ is still in that tomb, none of this is true. You ought to have the best life you can have here. Stay safe. Get wealthy, do whatever you want, live however you want, don't go anywhere risky. Why would you? There's nothing to be gained from it. But if he's alive, then everything changed. Jim Elliott said it like this We are no fool. We are not fools if we give up 
what we cannot keep to gain that which we cannot lose. We're not a fool to give up everything. We can't keep it anyway. And plus, we're giving it so that we can gain what can never be lost by us because Jesus Christ is holding on to it for us. This is what every one of you needs to understand. But hear me, you have to get this whether you go across to preach to ISIS or if you never leave Belton, Texas. This is not some optional add-on for like the missionaries, the special people. This is for every single one of us. The commands of Christ have to overflow from the life you have in Him. Our eyes are supposed to be opened like Mary's were to the value and the wonder of who Jesus Christ is. But once we get it, that's expected to show up in your schools and in your homes before you ever try and export it. We tell Cassie all the time as she was growing up in high school, knowing she wanted to go live forever in Ukraine. We used to tell her over and over when she would do something that we didn't like and she'd get really defensive about it. I'd look at her and I'd say, listen to me, we will not export this. We don't even want it in our own home. Why would I send it across to Ukraine? She had to be who she's telling me she's going to be right here for us before I'm ever going to support her going overseas. That's the same as y'all. You have to be willing to do it, whether you're in, on your basketball team or your baseball team, whether you're sitting in a classroom, whether, whether it's in a theater production, whether you're, whether you're in jazz band, no matter where you are, what you do, or whether it's with your little brothers and sisters. You have to be willing to be this not just do this. This is who you have to become, not the actions that you do. Know that though you are facing a hard battle. The world is selling you a message. Beyonce released a little, little something called Lemonade this week. I know. Here we are. But then Drake dropped views, so there we go. But here's the thing. Though... I will tell you, I don't probably want most of you to listen to them. There are some of you I do want you to listen to it. Do you know why? I don't want you to listen to it so you can learn from it. You're not expected to absorb it, but do you know what you could use it for? You could actually listen to have your eyes open to what are they thinking is redemption? Where will their salvation come from? What are they thinking? Where is their hope found? What problems do they hate? What injustices are they fighting? Beyonce didn't just drop lemonade because she just had a little moment and wrote a few songs. She is speaking out of a deep hurt and deep pain that you ought to recognize in yourself. But she's also reaching for a certain salvation, a certain hope, and a certain redemption to gain that back. And you ought to be listening because the world that is against you and too many of the church find their same hope, same salvation, and same redemption in that place. Don't go into the world thinking they're going to believe you, welcome you, welcome your views. Go into the world to listen to them so that you can answer for you've seen their hope. I now know what Beyonce's hope is set in. Yes, I listened. Yeah, I watched. You're welcome. I know. Now everybody's like, oh, crud. Yeah, I do. But I also listened for where her hope was found. But the deal is, if, why Beyonce would ever be around me, I have no idea. But if she did, I now know the hope that she has. The question is, if she met me, would she understand the hope I have? And would she find in my life, if she were to observe her life and find my life, would she find something that would cause her to say, I want that one. Guys, that's what I mean. 
It can't just be a message that you send. This has to be who you are. So that as you go to risk hard things, people don't just see it as hard things. Like you're the, like throwing ashes and sackcloth on. Poor me, look what I have to do for Jesus. But so that you pour out your life like Mary did to fill the place with the aroma of sacrifice. To live your life in such a way that when people view your life, they think, I want that. But if your life is looking for hope in the same place theirs, theirs is, well, all they're going to do is pat you and move on. There is a message that we're not just supposed to receive, but one that we become. That God's methods haven't changed. Beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. He still is looking for the sweat and blood of his people to be what proves the truth of the message. But hear me. (laughs) Now hear this part, in case you tuned out and started sleeping. This does not mean you go back to your parents and say, Mrs. Ron Slavin said I get to move overseas as soon as I graduate from high school. Just because they may come at you in fear doesn't mean all of them will come at you in fear. Some people you're going to seek counsel from. When Cassie told us, like, we want to go to Ukraine, I want to go to Ukraine for the rest of my life. We looked at her and said, that sounds like a really great idea, and we'll be watching for some areas of growth that will be necessary in you. I used to give her, like, little assignments in this outback, in this building, because Cassie likes to talk as much as I do, which means she would come into this building and she would tell everyone everything that she's thinking, just like she still does on Instagram and Facebook. But she would not leave having heard from you. So I used to give Cassie assignments when she would come in here and say to you, I know all about your life. I don't need to know more, and I don't need to know what you did or who you talked to. What I want to know is from five people that you talked to tonight, you tell me about them. Can you learn and grow in listening to people? And I went to Louisville at the beginning of this year, and this young woman, this newly married, has a little baby, and she picked me up, and she hugged me with tears. I never met her before. And DJ said to me, thank you so much for training up Cassie. I have no one who listens to my heart like she does. That's a grace gift of God. She's worked really hard to shut up and to listen. I have to work really hard to shut up and listen. She had to work on it too. Guys, when you're talking to people about your plans and what you can feel God doing in your life, just because they say, I don't think that's a good idea, doesn't mean they're doing so out of fear. It might be that they're identifying sin in you or immaturity in you or skills you don't have. Before Wayne went to Ukraine, then he took Cassie to Ukraine. Then we all joined them to go to Ukraine. She's been through the Heathrow Airport over and over and over. She knows how to do passport control. She knows how to go through customs. She knows about baggage. She knows where to go for help. She's done it in Paris, in Rome, in Barcelona, in Amsterdam, in Frankfurt, in London. She can make her way through international airports. It's just a skill she needed. If she's going to be traveling back and forth for the rest of her life, we needed her to be skilled at it. It's possible you need some skills too. There's sin you need to put to death. There's areas of your life that are immature. They need growing. Because, again, let me say it. Because your life is not meant to get in the way of the message you're going to give. It doesn't matter if you come through six years of impact. You can tell the gospel four ways perfectly. But then they watch your life and they're like, you don't have anything else going for you but the ability to tell four gospel presentations. Like, I wouldn't want to match your life. You don't seem to have any hope. Your life seems to be in... in, imbued with sin like why would I want to follow after that 
You have to become the kind of person they could say, imitate her as she imitates Christ, just like Paul told us to do. I want you to know, though, that whatever you cost, whatever he asks of you, it is worth it. It's worth it. That's what Mary understood. Her eyes have been opened to the reality of who Jesus Christ is. And as Jesus leaned against that table, as he had at her house over and over and over again, it wasn't Jesus that had changed. And it wasn't his message that had changed. It was Mary that was different now. Her eyes were open to his value, to his story, to her place in that story. And against the scorn of man, even the scorn of other followers, she gave what she could to sacrifice her life for Jesus Christ while she could. It's not only you that are being asked to pour out your life. It's me too. There's no adult in here who doesn't, doesn't have the same call. You're expected to run hard. It's also right that you look to us to run harder than you are. To go ahead of you in sacrifice. To go ahead of you in our knowledge of Him. Just know that Mary had it right. When you evaluate the risk of what Jesus Christ is asking you to do, and you look to the reward that He promises you of His presence, His power, his provision, all the promises of God being yes for you because of Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians one twenty. When you have that, you can be sure that there is nothing you will pour out for him that will not be restored to you in this life and in the one to come. He is worth the risk, and risking everything for Jesus Christ is the wisest thing that we can do. Let me pray, then you've got some questions at your table. Father, Make us into these people. Make us into the people who actually can see Jesus for who he really is. Because if we do, then every decision that we're going to be making, whether it's the choice of where to go to college or who to marry or what job we have, will be filtered through. Is this in line with the decision of giving everything to Jesus Christ? But do that first in us as leaders. So that as these students grow, they don't ever see somebody who looks back and waves them off and says, indignantly why are you wasting your life but instead we say no that and more pour yourself out for him for in him is life and life eternal father i can't even imagine what it would be like if this group of kids grew up to be those whose lives declared the reality that their jesus is better than any treasure than all the riches of the world could offer that they have a hope that is worth singing about for eternity. Father, do this in us by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray for Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Your questions are at the table.